Hi, I'm Ozzy Jurok and I'm the host of OzBuzz and today I have the privilege to uh, talk to Bruce McDonald. Uh, Bruce is a true blue Vancouverite. He knows more about Vancouver than anybody else. He is a raconteur, raconteur wit and eclectic and that totality of him put together a wonderful book called Vancouver a visual history. Welcome Bruce. Good to see you Ozzy. How did you get the idea of writing a book about all you know? It's a good question because it, it's actually a result of the fact that from 1980 to 1985 I worked as a laborer outdoors really? being <laughs> physically fit actually very highly paid you know laborers union compared to when I was an engineer or a school teacher I got more money being a laborer and I had a completely stress-free life so it was when I was working on Anasis Island, we were building tilt-up warehouses when, and they were building the bridge there too at the same time, um, that I realized, geez, we're, we're living in this sort of delta, like the Nile Delta, uh, you know, and it struck me that I didn't know when people had come here, non-natives, I didn't know when native people had come here. Didn't, as a matter of fact, I didn't know anything about native people at all because I, despite the fact I went to school here for 17 years, yeah. was never taught one word about the native history right. and not even one word about Vancouver history because all of our textbooks are from Ontario. It was all written <laughs> about the Huron and the Iroquois and I guess Toronto and Montreal and Ottawa, but there was nothing on the West. Those yeah. textbooks came later. So that great void um, was huge and I had read the only two books on Vancouver that were out at the time in the 70s. There were two print books. And they, they had a few photographs in the middle, but basically they're terrific books, but completely unillustrated for the most part. So I realized that was a big hole in the in the thing, and I realized that what they needed were maps and photographs and so on and yeah, graphs. That's, yeah. that's that's what I like about the structure because you put it into sort of ten year segments. Yeah. And there was the map as it looked then, most likely. Taking and you back to that who decade. Who lived there? Was yeah. it the actors, the politicians? And that's what makes yeah. it come alive. It was everything I could think of, and I was able to do it. Like normally, you go to your publisher and say, "Well, I think we should have a map in this book." You say, "No way! It's going to cost thousands of dollars, and, and it, the printing would cost thousands of dollars. It would make it un unsustainable." So, because computers came out in the '80s, personal yeah. computers. I was really at the forefront of that whole business and I bought a computer in 1984 in order to be able to print out text to do a mock-up to illustrate my idea. Yeah. And once I'd done, I just, I, I like to mention this because when I did that mock-up, you know, it sort of didn't matter how much I said to people, oh, it's a decade-based history with every decade exactly the same, starting with a map and having eight pictures of people from the decade, pictures taken in the decade that show you the hairstyle and the clothing of yeah. the decade yeah. and, the, and all that. And then, you know, the sky, downtown skyline every 10 years, you know, f take it from the same place and on and on, you know, that sounds pretty good, but it's, you don't convince anybody until you show them the mock-up. And literally I showed that mock-up to like 50, you know, pretty high level people, the mayor, MPs, MLAs, you know, any, you know, Celia Duffy, all these people. That was very brave of you because you needed some money in order to put all that together. You know, I don't, I'm not quite sure why I was even showing it to those people because I knew it was, would take 10,000 hours to do it and it yeah. did ultimately it did take me 10,000 hours. I, I was just sort of wasn't thinking I guess because I <laughs> knew I didn't want to spend 10,000 hours you know, unpaid <laughs> yeah. you know, doing this book. I, it was, that wasn't going to work. But that sort of, sort of why I actually bought a second home was I came up with actually three great ideas in 1984 and the book was one of them and I thought you know I really should quit my job and, and how am I going to do that? How am I going to 
sustain, you know, how am I going to pay the rent? I thought, well, I'll buy a second house and then I'll use yeah. that income yeah. to, so I don't have to work. Brilliant. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then I got carried away, I got yeah. a bunch more houses, yeah. and now I still haven't done those other two <laughs> ideas, but I own <laughs> millions of dollars of the real estate. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, that, that with your help, by the yeah. way. <laughs> that is, of course, uh, that is, of course, music to my ears. Uh, yes. But the point is that the idea wasn't just to write a book. The idea was to make it interesting. Oh yeah. Make it you and, and start sort of in 1850 and and. The 1850s, when there were no non-native people here, yeah. the First Nations people had been here 10,000 years yeah. You know, yeah. before we rolled in yeah. to town. And by the way, it's interesting. Most people don't know it, but the, you know people, non-natives and native people actually, they came up with this land system where you could buy land, or really? preempt land. In 1860, it was January oh. the 4th, 1860, the colony passed these laws saying anybody's allowed to stake off 160 acres and if you improve it, we'll sell it to you for a dollar an acre. And Ozzy, <laughs> I'd like to point out to you, like all the land of Vancouver is sold for a dollar an acre. Yeah. That's 10 cents for a lot on the west side. Yeah. You know, too bad you can't go back. Yeah. 10 oh. cents. But so, so is that how the business of real estate started then originally? In well, in Vancouver, it, most people don't know this, but January the 4th, 1860, part of the reason um, it happened was we had Colonel Moody in New Westminster, which was sort of the... The he was the gatekeeper to the to the gold rush, right? Because New Westminster's at the choke point of the right. Fraser River, so that was sort of the and he he was a military guy running the show there. But he he was he knew that there was real opportunity here because a couple of First Nations people, uh, somebody in New Westminster had a lump of coal in the window of their shop. They were selling coal, and uh, some First Nations person from Burrard Inlet said, "What is it with you guys in, in this black rock stuff?" And they go, "Oh, we." <laughs> You see, guys seem to be big on this black rock. Well, what is it about the black? He goes, oh, it's very, it's, it's great. And he goes, oh, really? I can show you where you can get some. They go, what? You know, so so they skittered into Vancouver in 1859. Now that was Colonel Moody's right hand man, Robert Burnaby, and they 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 figured they were going to end up like having Craig Derrick Castle, like Robert Dunsford did in Nanaimo. It was like a diamond mine or a gold mine back then. If you had a coal mine, so they that was 1859. They they tried to Robert Burnaby sort of staked five thousand acres in Coal Harbor yeah. when you weren't allowed to do that. It, yeah. was, it was Native First Nations land, period, hundred percent. So they were busy lobbying Governor Douglas. Come on, come on, come yeah. on, bring in this preemption system. We want to get in there first. Yeah. We'll all become fabulously wealthy. So Colonel Moody and Robert Burnaby were were lobbying to get yeah. this law rammed through, and um, and so. So they did, they were in there uh, in the West End, you know, claiming the land in 1860. But, and then all the elites in Victoria, all the super rich in Victoria, they all, you know, took up the land along Burrard Inlet because, it, or where the coal was. There was yeah. coal in Kitsilano too, just west of Kitts Beach. And then, but really the population was mostly in New Westminster at the time. Oh, it was 100% New Westminster. Yeah. People, yeah. when the three greenhorns, you know, <clears throat> preempted the West End, you know, the, all the land from Burrard to Stanley Park, they were considered to be idiots. This is the middle of nowhere. Trees 400 feet tall. How are you going to have a farm? Like, what can you do with that? There was yeah. no sawmills. Yeah. Well, in New Westminster, maybe they're just starting one sawmill, maybe. But you know, the trees 400 yeah. feet tall and, yeah. and 20 feet or 10 or yeah. 20 feet across. I mean, you, you know, you, you're, you're, if you got any brains at all, you, you, you go to Richmond, have a farm, you know, yeah. and you got a crop <laughs> and you can sell it. So they thought these, they called them three greenhorns, like they didn't know they're doing. They're yeah. 10 miles out of town. They might as well have been in Bella Bella. Yeah. You know. <laughs> New Westminster, even New Westminster wasn't very big, it was like 400 people. Or Mind you, there's no opportunity, people. I guess. And well, no, what, what the opportunity was, was Morton, one of the three Greenhorns, he was a, a brickmaker. So he knew there was a bit of coal there, right by the Marine Building. 
and you figure there's clay there in that creek behind the marine building, I can make bricks. You know, yeah. so people yeah. thought, really, that's yeah. it? You know, if you, and so he bought 550 acres, the whole West End for $550, <laughs> a dollar an acre. And you know, the interesting thing about him and his cousins, the Brighouse and, um, and Hailstone, the three of them, the three greenhorns, they all lived 50 years longer till yeah. 1912. And they were alive in 1912 when the World Bank at the intersection of, of uh, Gravel and Hastings, that when they bought that site and built the Royal Bank on it, that they bought that land there was worth $2 million an acre. Huh. The land that they had paid a dollar for oh, yeah. was worth $2 million an acre <laughs> when it peaked so were in they the first? Were they the first successful speculators? Uh, well, they, they weren't really speculating. I mean, they were, they were buying, like, is, when you buy land in Bella Coola, are you speculating? No, <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah. You're trying to make bricks or something. Yeah. So they're not the first speculators. The first speculator, really, was H.V. Edmonds, who took up Mount Pleasant, you know, the land just south of uh, Falls Creek, in 1869. Now, that, that's interesting, because he was thinking, because, and the reason he was thinking was, remember, up until 1869, if you wanted to cross North America, you were on foot. <laughs> and the, and yeah. the funny thing about that is, you know, you know, they had the American Revolution, the 13 colonies, 1776, yeah. they rebelled and they created the United States. Well, it wasn't until 1804 that somebody, white guy, actually walked across <laughs> North America. It was Lewis and Clark, right? Was yeah. it 1804 or 1802 or something? Yeah. It was like, what were they doing for the 25 years? Yeah. Yeah. You know, weren't they paying attention? There's a whole continent there. Anyhow, so that was kind of funny. Up until, so up until 1869, it used to be if you wanted to come to the West Coast, you had to go all the way down to like Arctica, you know, around the tip of South America and all the way up South America. And then eventually you could hike across at Panama, you know. But really, the, when, they, when they first built the railway across North America, it, right. it landed in San Francisco in 1869, just when H.V. Edmonds was on his way through to, to New Westminster. And he couldn't believe it. I mean, he, called, he, he used the word pandemonium. I mean, the, the land was skyrocketing so fast, like you could buy a lot today and sell it tomorrow for yeah. double what you paid for it. Kind so of we've thing. had real estate speculation Oh, it before. was unbelievable. Yeah. It was just fantastic because, you know, San Francisco was the middle of nowhere. It was yeah. a few hundred people. And then it just shot up like a rocket. But there's always some people that can see a future and Well, that, that I mean, yeah. I'm sure everybody was buying land back then. Yeah. But so he, when he got to Vancouver, he had to ask himself, like back then, that's 1869, like the, the election in Victoria in 1867, people were saying, well, Canada just got formed. Like, yeah. let's somebody said, well, let's join Canada. And most people in Victoria said, like, what? Canada? Like, <laughs> you can't get there from here. Yeah. But you have to walk for 4,000 miles. <laughs> like, let's just take a boat to San Francisco or LA. Yeah. Like, why don't we join up with San Francisco? Because they're yeah. not that far away. So there's yeah. a big movement to join the United States. As a matter of fact, even Israel Powell, who, who eventually bought that same lot that H.V. Um, Evans the 160 acres, whatever it was, in Mount Pleasant, he 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 lost the election because he was arguing to join Canada. People said, "No, no way, stupid idea." Eventually, he, he I think he was a guy who helped BC join Canada in 1871. So we joined Canada in 1871. So, but the the reason, the only reason we joined Canada was they were going to build a railway here. Otherwise, what's the point? You, there's no yeah. point joining Canada. You can't get there. It's yeah. quite amazing how the railway really opened up everything. Unbelievable. And by the way, talk about real estate. The railway was a real estate play. You know, yeah. they got, you, you know how much it drives up the value of land sure. to have a railroad come through sure. your town. Well, that's where all the towns are in Canada within shooting, spitting distance of the railroad. Uh, they, um, I did my very first essay, grade eight, I did on the CPR. And you know, I remember about that essay in grade eight, the CPR, not only were they given a thousand tracks that had already been built, they were given 
$30 million huh. and 30 million acres of <laughs> land along the railway. Gee, I think I'll take that deal. <laughs> Talk about a real estate deal. I, yeah. you know, I can do that. But of course, it was, it was kind of hard to pull off because of the politics and raising the money. And, you know. Well, yeah, afterwards it looks easier. Yeah, but, yeah exactly. Now, okay, so Vancouver City was established in 1886. What was the first lot occupied that had a business? Well, you know, Vancouver, it's funny, everybody will tell you Vancouver was founded in 1886, but it was actually founded in 1870. It was just called Gramble, you know, yeah. and they renamed it in 1886. Yeah. So it was a town site in uh, 1870, and the very first business person was um, back to 1867 when Canada was formed. Uh, there was, they opened the sawmill in 1867. Like, they built it in 1865. Like, this is at the foot yeah. of, sort of at the foot of Main Street. Mm. They didn't, but they needed the blade for this, and they never arrived until 1867 because you had to ship it from England, it had to go down to Antarctic and come up. So they didn't start yeah. running the mill until 1867. So the second they started running the mill, uh, Gassy Jack was this retired uh, steamboat captain in New Westminster, he, a bit of an alcoholic. So <laughs> he knew that the that the the whole um, sawmill, the Hastings sawmill, that the owner was a strict anti-alcohol guy, yeah. teetotaler. So no alcohol at all in Burrard Inlet, you know. And so the, you had 300 thirsty single men with big paychecks. So Gassy Jack rose there in a rowboat and one keg of whiskey. And then he said, any of you guys want to help me build a saloon? So everybody was in. They built the saloon in one day. So it was a little shack. It was a shack. And so then from that day on, this is right at Carroll and Hastings. So right, right where the Maple Tree Square is today yeah. and the statue of Gassy Jack. He built it right right there and that's the edge of the sawmill property so of course from then on you know the the sawmill workers would come stay up all night playing poker getting drunk and the mill owners just hated hated gassy jack so what happened was eventually the provincial government got around to creating a town site there uh jack gassy jack was all by himself in the beginning and then when they drew up the town site which just six city blocks and they offered the lots up for sale in 1870 called it granville the town of granville and you know there wasn't exactly a land rush that ozzy to coin a coin a phrase a word um, they, three, they sold three lots. One to Gassy Jack because they, they had plotted out the town so that his his he was squatting on his little saloon. They, they made they put his shack in the middle of the road, the middle of of Carroll Street. So he had to buy a lot, you know, in, on the corner of Carroll. But it's probably the it's a great story because you know he saw the the possibilities. You know, there's economic growth, population growth. They say that the gold rush in Alaska, the people that really made the money were the ones that had a store and sold well, the yeah, shovels. We'll, get, we'll get to Oppenheimer later. <laughs> yeah, that's the Oppenheimer story. <clears throat> but uh, just to get back to Gas Jack for a second. So he he was all, the, in my book, I have the downtown skyline every decade going back. And of yes. course, the 1860s, the, the whole Vancouver downtown skyline is this one shack was built in the day, Gassy <laughs> Jack Saloon. That's the whole central business district. And the funny thing about that is Gassy Jack died in 1875 and yet, now there's two million people here. Yeah. I could have met his wife. Yeah. I, he, his wife lived really? yeah. to the point where I was born. 1948, yeah. she was alive. I was Amazing. alive in 1948. Yeah. yeah. That two million people just in two lifetimes. So the lesson here is you got to go where the action is going to be. Go, go where the, thir the thirsty workers are with their big paychecks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the, the, um, you also mentioned the, the dumb luck that... Uh, well, I think that applies it. to most Vancouverites. Yeah. You know, they yeah. bought a house in the 50s for yeah. whatever, how much would it cost, like 5000 or 2000 or or less, or what, a couple of thousand bucks, just for, so they'd have a place to live and yeah. a place to raise the family. Now they're all millionaires. Yeah. Or even if you bought a house, what, five years ago? Yeah. You're sure. a millionaire, yeah. right? Yeah. If you yeah. bought a house in North Van in 2015 
for two million, yeah. you were a millionaire in one year because yeah. it was worth three million. We're right. not fifty percent in one year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a millionaire yeah. doing you didn't do anything for that. Well, that's I in my first book, forget about location, location. I made that point that if you keep on creating money for the next thirty-five years, and we did the thirty-five years previously, yeah. every house in Vancouver will be worth four million, six million dollars. Mm -hmm. And last year, the West Side was four million. That's almost. But Vancouver, of course, has some special reasons as well. So the Greenhorns bought the West End, you said, for a dollar an acre? Yeah. <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> so, well, you, you, you mentioned to, to me before that if you want to play, you have to buy a ticket. No? Yeah, it's like being a fisherman, you know. You got the oceans full of fish. You don't even know what's under the surface. But the first thing you do is buy a net, and then you throw it in there. And maybe you come up with nothing. Yeah. Or I had a friend that was herring fishing. You know, he, he would he would throw in his net and get fifty thousand dollars worth of herring, you know, in an hour or two, and dump it in his boat. He told he's telling me I should get a herring boat <laughs> for that reason. <laughs> yeah. So that made me think of it. Yeah, I mean, that, and real estate, you got to be in the game. Yeah. And, and if you're reluctant, you know, I do talk to people all the time. Or actually, in the coffee shop this morning, somebody's asking my advice. You know, the main thing is to get in the game, yeah. in a small way or any way at all. But just get your toe on the water. You know, looking at the ocean, you don't know what's going on. You stick your toe in, at least you got the temperature. You know, I mean, you're, you're getting involved <laughs> now. I mean, yeah. anyhow. It's not always this wishful thinking, you know. But the, you, had, you had a sentence there, mega millions with just a sentence. Well, that is amazing. That is amazing because you see that I'm starting to, I've thought about it for decades. Um, the CPR, when they came across Canada, it, the CPR was run by Smith and Angus, and Smith was Lord Strathcona, right? Yeah. And Angus was the president of the Bank of Montreal. The Lord Smith, uh, Donald Smith, was actually the biggest shareholder in the Hudson's Bay Company. So these are two of the richest guys in Canada, uh, I, I guess, when they got involved in the CPR. And they were certainly a lot wealthier by the time the CPR was finished. Because um, I think this is probably, they, a, lot of, a lot of people in the CPR were Americans. So they, they had learned the tricks of the trade in the United States with the American rules. And I'm sort of making this up, but you can imagine they learned how to make money on the side. And it's pretty clear to me, at least, although my professors I worked with, my five university professors I worked with on my book weren't convinced. But, um, you know, if you go to the, the archives, you can look at the assessment records from 1887-88. And just a lot of the lots, the owner is listed as as ANS, ANS, ANS. They abbreviated it because yeah. they own thousands and thousands of lots, yeah. Angus and Smith, the CPR lands. So. Uh, when I first pointed this out to my academic team, uh, they said, "Oh, well, that's because they're they're holding the land in trust for the CPR. You know, that's not they're not personally owning that land." Mm -hmm. I said, "Really? Do they really think so?" Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, so part of my research I did in the book, I had to spend a whole month at the land title office. People actually uh, thought I worked there because I was uh, there nine to five every day for a month, and, and that's how I plotted uh, uh, in my decades who owned all the land and, and when they bought it and all that kind of stuff. So anyhow, while I was there, it's kind of interesting. You know, every line of the, they have these absolute fee books, they're called, they probably weigh more than 100 pounds, like six inches thick and like two feet by three feet. And it's handwritten. Every single line is a land transaction. Like Ozzy Jurok sells yeah. lot three to Bruce McDonald. Yeah. And then it'll give the, the, the legal description. Yeah. One line for each lot. Well, I was there one day and I thought, what's this? There was one line, you know, Ozzy sells to Bruce, but then the list of lots went on for 24 pages. <laughs> yeah. So you couldn't help but notice that most of the page was blank, except yeah. for the lot number. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, what do you call this? Hashtag. hashtag, hashtag yeah. So it took me a while to figure it out. And what it was, was 
which proved my case. I'm not sure my professors are even convinced to this day, but <laughs> what happened was the CPR, because they said, well, Bruce, you know, clearly that didn't happen because the CPR made gobs of money off of Vancouver. Yeah. Everybody knows that. It was the most profitable part of the CPR was the Vancouver lands. Okay, fair argument. So what that was, was which is pretty interesting, was um, um, the, when they developed Kitsilano in 1905, the CPR developed Kitsilano in 1905. And by the way, part of the reason they did that was they had a 20-year exemption from taxes on the land. Oh. So, but the land, let me just tell you where the land came from. What happened with the CPR was they agreed to build the CPR across Canada to Tidewater. So Tidewater was, was part Moody. Now, they knew Vancouver was the best harbor, one of the best harbors in the whole world. Sure. Port Moody's kind of mountainous, not enough. Mm. And by the way, private landowners were already there. They already bought up that land. Sure. So what, that's no good for the insiders. So, so they wanted to leapfrog uh, into Vancouver 10 miles. And so as part of the negotiations with the Premier of BC, they said, well, look, we'll build the railway the next 10 miles like you want us to, but you're going to have to you know, compensate us. So what do you want? Well, we want 6,000 acres of yeah. downtown Vancouver. So the middle third it. of Vancouver, the whole downtown <laughs> from Bard Street East, and then you know a, the, a whole center piece from Trafalgar Street over to <laughs> Ontario, almost yeah. the main street, 6,000 acres. Yeah. So, so they build the, um, they build this uh, 10 miles into Vancouver and arrived May 23rd, 1887. And uh, then they, so when they finished, they get their lawyer who is Montague Drake. He was the mayor of Victoria, he was a MLA and he was, um, their lawyer for the CPR. They got Montague Great, you know, Drake Street Yards in Vancouver and Drake Street. Um, they got him to write a letter to the Premier and it, it went like this, talk about a short letter. It goes, Dear Premier, oh by the way, uh, when, when it comes time to transfer the, the land title certificate to the CPR, the 6,000 acres, don't write CPR there, write <laughs> Smith and Angus. Yeah. And the Premier goes, well, he wrote back and said, well no, I can't do that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Well, not unless you get permission of the board of the CPR. <laughs> well, you can imagine, yeah. Smith and Angus probably appointed the entire board of the CPR <laughs> and they said, here, sign this or something. Yeah. And so sure enough, they got approval of the board <laughs> and, and the land was transferred into their names. Yeah. Now, how can they possibly hide the fact they've stolen all of this land? land? Yeah. Well, that's what they found in the land title office. It was when they developed Kitsilano in 1905 uh, and they had 20 year exemption of taxes. So the taxes were coming due on the land. They didn't have to pay a cent for 20 years. So now it's a problem. You got to pay taxes on six thousand acres or something. So so anyhow. So what the what it was in the land title office was Smith and Angus selling, oh. and it was like every second lot yeah. or every third yeah. lot in Kitsilano to the CPR for uh, one dollar for one dollar. <laughs> so the CPR put all the ads in the yeah. paper. Buy your lots yeah. in Kitsilano, and they. The, you know, they probably built a few streets uh, and whatever they did to uh, make everybody rush down, uh, built the, made sure the streetcar went by and all that kind of stuff. And Smith and Angus quietly, you know, made as much money as, or, or not, <laughs> roughly speaking, uh, as the CPR did. And that was just like from a one sentence uh, letter, two uh, sentence letter. But that's the way to make, that's billions of dollars worth of land, by the uh, way. So uh, you, you made the point once that uh, Leonard Cohen in his famous song, Bird on a Wire, he, uh, you should not ask for so much, he said. But uh, well, I got the quote right here, yeah. Ozzy. Funny you should mention it. <laughs> it here, here's the the song, "Burn on a Wire." I saw a beggar leaning on his wooden crutch. He said to me, "You must not ask for so much." And a pretty woman leaning on her darkened door. She cried to me, "Hey, 
why not ask for more? Yeah. You know, pretty woman going, hey, yeah. let's do it. You go, yeah. yeah, okay, that's kind of a convincing <laughs> argument. So well, yeah, it, it is an interesting point. Like, why well, not? Why not? Why not? Get well, that's creative. certainly about Ian. It's a bit extreme, but, it, yeah. but it is asking for more. I mean, whew, asking for the moon, really. Uh, well, and, but and it's interesting. Looks you know, like they from, got it. You know, but from negotiating, if yeah. you, if you negotiate with somebody, and they're not really giving up anything. This is yeah. what I did when I when I uh, I made money on my book because I went to a workshop on publishing where the the top publisher on the West Coast of North America is told me what, you know, told the class what to do. He said, you know, when you sign uh, up for the book publisher, about a week later, they, you know, they say, okay, we'll publish a book. But a week later, you get a letter in the mail from his secretary, and it says, oh, but here are the standard contracts. Please sign and send back to us. He said, the standard contract is like 7%. He says, don't sign that contract yeah. and send it back. He said, yeah. a con I'll never forget this. Yeah. He said, a contract is anything two people agree to. Yeah. Yeah. It can be anything. Yeah. So yeah. I got 12%, you know, because yeah. by asking for yeah. it. And then I said to my publisher, because I learned all about publishing from this guy, I said, you know, I, I was smart enough, and this is why education is so important, and, that, and that's where you yep. come in, Austin. You're very good at educating people about real estate. That the, This big publisher said, you know, um, you know, when you, when you run the printing presses, you know, like the first book costs you $10,000, and then right. you want to print 1,000 copies, that costs you like $10,100, because right. the, the cost is the setup. So, nice. so the point being that I, so I said, I used that bit of information to say to my publisher, okay, well, run the printing presses for five minutes and sell me a thousand copies for the cost of that five minute print run. Mm -hmm. So it was like $5 a book. Now, when I buy a book from my publisher now, it costs me almost 40 bucks, mm -hmm. but I got that print run at $5 a book. So I was able to sell, you were my best customer actually in 1992 when the book came out. You bought, I don't know how many, but yeah. thousands yeah. of dollars worth of my book. Be and I only paid $5 a copy. So yeah. I made a lot sure. of money yeah. and that's how I doubled my royalty was by knowing enough about the whole industry, knowing the big picture, and that's an important lesson to learn. You want to do well in real estate, learn the big picture, yeah. and learn then a contract, and when you're buying a place, you can negotiate anything you want, really. You and can ask fact, for this, negotiation, ask for you know, in life, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are always out there saying, could I make that low offer? Could, well, you don't know until you find out. You and, know, and, that's, and you're quite often you're, surprised. Yeah, yeah. that's right, yeah. because uh, everybody has different but reasons. But I'll tell you a secret <coughs> negotiating that I learned from, from that experience was, the way to get what you want is to make it so the other person isn't giving up anything. So I said to my publisher, run the presses for five minutes, I'll pay you for that print run, you know, five bucks a book, a thousand bucks, mm -hmm. I'll pay you five thousand dollars. But I want to be able. I want to be able to sell. I'm going to do that to sell to the market you're not selling to. In other words, I'm going to give a lecture and right. sell to my audience, or I'm going to do the corporate sales, which she's not interested in. She says, right. "Oh, sure, fine, I don't care." Yeah. And so I got the boom. It's like that. He wasn't giving up anything. That's yeah. the secret to getting what you want. That's right. Well, it has to be always a win-win, and you have yeah, to be able to ask for it. There's no question about it. And well, those it. those guys were in Kitsilano. Now we also have our very own. Uh, well, I don't know whether speculators in West Vancouver who ended up buying. Well, that's that's an example of buying low, and, yeah. you know, and selling high. How do you buy low? Well, there's a big depression like there was in the 1930s, where nobody's got any money to buy anything, so the price plummets. Like yeah. your your place is almost worthless, yeah. you, you know. So in Vancouver, for example, like today, like let's say my house cost streets for a two million. Well, my taxes on that I think are four thousand dollars a year. Yeah. In the 1930s, if you had a two million dollar house and your taxes were four thousand, people couldn't pay the four thousand, yeah, yeah. so they lost their place to taxes. Sure. So if Aussie walks up with four grand, the city yeah. will sell them my two million dollar house for four grand, mm. and that's what happened all over Vancouver. There was something like twenty thousand homes that nobody could afford to buy. Yeah. But you know, so even the British property has got three thousand acres. Four thousand, four thousand acres. acres yeah. yeah. 
and, and that's interesting because my, I grew up with my family because my dad, he was in the Second World War and, and he, as a veteran, he qualified for a low cost mortgage. So he, he's kind of a funny guy, my dad. He's really smart, but he was kind of straight and naive almost at the same time, very straight guy. And so he thought, oh, low cost mortgage, I think I'll go for that. Well, the problem was you needed 1.6 acres of land to qualify for this mortgage. So when I was like five years old, we used, every Sunday we used to drive around trying to find 1.6 acres of Vancouver. We never could find it. So we ended up in West Van. The biggest lot you could find was 1.1 acres. So there's a picture, I, you might have, I think I showed it to you, of when we bought the lot in 1953, and there's, there's a sign there. It says $2,600. You know, $2,600 for 1.1 acres. Yeah. Well, that, that lot last year, was assessed at seven million dollars, almost yeah. seven million dollars. Yeah. So, so, uh, so that was dumb luck for my dad's part. You know, he didn't even believe in the in the private ownership of land because he was so old. He was you know, forty years older than me. He had a Victorian mother, and they were they were so old that they they remembered the times when there was the commons, right? Like nobody owned their own land. You you your people shared the land. It was called the commons, and the idea of privatizing land was sort of you know, people were against it. So my dad didn't even believe in the private ownership of land that much. I mean, but... But then he took actions because he was... Because he got this low-cost loan. <laughs> <laughs> well, also for the family and so on. Well, yeah, no, it was a great... So, he loved so, that place. So you want to buy low and sell high, of course, but you also want to buy low, especially when the others can't. Right? Yeah, so that so in the case of West Vancouver, that West Vancouver went bankrupt in, in the early 30s, and they were desperate for money. So AJT Taylor, you know, Taylor Way is the main drag yeah. up the, to the British properties. He was his engineer guy from Victoria who uh, ended up, he came to Vancouver originally, was living in like this shack behind the Marine building. Well, the Marine building wasn't there yet. And then in 1929, they built the Marine building and somehow he, he was in London. He ended up in Millionaire's Row in London. And then he came back to Vancouver and found out that the Marine building had gone bankrupt. And so he, he knew all these millionaires in Millionaire's Row Actually, the streets in the British properties are named after them. Uh, and um, he, he went back there and said, hey, there's an incredible opportunity to buy land. It's super cheap in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. you got money nobody else does. You can buy 4,000 acres, basically all the land above the upper levels yeah. from the Capilano River yeah. to Horseshoe Bay <laughs> for, you know, this is the land my dad, it's now worth $7 million yeah. an acre. Uh, that's not waterfront, though, of course. And they got it for $17 an acre. Yeah. 4,000 acres for $75,000 on the condition they build the Lionsgate Bridge. Right. Well, right. gee whiz, right. yeah, okay. So they right. built the Lionsgate Bridge. Right. And they bought the Marine Building. Right. You know, So that was all Taylor, AJT Taylor, Taylor Way. And, and they've the, been involved in West Van ever since, you know, with the hospital. Yeah, Grosvenor, yeah. Grosvenor family. Yeah. But the neat, the neat thing is the Marine Building, like if you look at Marine Building, it's, it's actually got an Aztec temple at the top. Okay, yeah. It's a penthouse. Yeah. And Taylor lived there. Can you imagine this guy? It's the early depression. Everybody else is <laughs> poor and busted. He's living in the penthouse. And, that, and the Marine Building is kind of neat because it looks straight down Hastings Street all yeah. the way to Victory Square. Yeah. You know, the financial district, yeah. the business district yeah. of Vancouver. He's king of the... Talk about King of the Hill. Yeah. And then he looks out the window and later on, the late three Lionsgate Bridges there. Yeah. He arranged that to be built. And then yeah. the whole of West Vancouver is being developed. That was all him. There's all this one guy yeah. did that. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes you do need a leader and a visionary and somebody has a little money. It's always good to have yeah. a little cash and you know, to buy when it's, it's nobody else can. But if you don't have any money, you can hook up the people with money yeah. to a good idea. So yeah. even if you got no money at all, pay attention to what's going on. Yeah. You say you always talk about sometimes you have to also know the right person too. Well, that, I got a good example of that, like uh, the Bayshore Inn, we were there on the weekend, right? Yeah. For the uh, Money Talks yeah. conference. And um, Bayshore Inn sits on six acres right now, 
that land is, if you look it up, what's it worth? It's worth almost $200 million, I think. Yeah, yeah. Is it something like $200 million for six acres? And you know, that land, um, in 1949, um, Mrs. Victor Spencer, I don't know, if you've been in Vancouver a long time, you'll, you'll have heard of Colonel Victor Spencer. You know, Aberthour is now the West Point Grade Community Center. Okay. Well, that was Colonel Victor Spencer's house as a mansion. And um, the Spencer family owned what people know as the Eaton stores in Vancouver. They owned mm -hmm. nine great big department stores. They started Victoria. They sold them all in 1949 for $14 million. But uh, the very well-known Vancouver family, um, Chris Spencer's house is where the, that private girls' school is, what's on, on 41st. Okay. Anyway, his five-acre estate. So, so Colonel Victor Spencer, his wife, in 1949, she got a hold of uh, uh, the Bayshore Insight, and I was just reading again, uh, up on, on it again today. Her lawyer was the guy who had the connections. He had been on, in on the creation of the, of the Federal Harbors Board, and he was the first president of the Harbors Board. Now, if you wanted to use Harbors Board land, you had to lease it, but because <laughs> Mrs. Colonel Victor Spencer was this like really, elite Vancouver family and uh, he, she was able to buy that land, $200 million of land, or I say more than $300 million yeah. of land I guess, for $1, sold, <laughs> sold it to her for $1. <laughs> so there's a Jeez. good example of you have the right connections and uh, you know make an exception in your case for you $1. Yeah, for you. <laughs> for your buddy, your buddy in the, yeah. So while that leads you, you have to know the right pe person but you also have to network in order to Exactly. Together with that yeah. person. Yeah, and networking is so important, of course. And and that uh, networking, I mean, even Brian Maroney, you know, he he was successful partly because every single night he got on the phone for two or three hours and phoned when he was prime minister. People all across Canada keep his finger on the pulse of what was going on. Yeah. You know, can you imagine how knowledgeable? Yeah. Like I don't phone anybody. Right. You can imagine how far ahead of the game he was phoning all of his yeah. key people everywhere finding out what was really going on, not yeah. just what his advisors were telling because him. Because by the time it goes to the top, it's filtered yeah, it's filtered, by filtered. six you get Like Donald Trump's probably an example yeah. of that, but yeah. So um, yeah, very important to network, very important to have a broad sense of the big picture and knowledge. And that, of course, I, it, it always comes back to you, Ozzy. You're the guy who does all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> With what you do. But I look at, uh, when I, I wrote a newsletter, of course, for many years, I always looked at your book and I just uh, showed you the book that is earmarked and bookmarked mm -hmm. and dog written eared. in and dog-eared. Yep. Quote after quote uh, that is, is real and you the book brings Vancouver alive. I mean, we are alive in a vibrant city now. You can't imagine that we literally came out of the forest. I'm a member of the Vancouver Golf Club, and a golf club is actually in Coquitlam. But yeah, that was I know. But <laughs> that was because in New Westminster, the story goes that yeah. some of the guys wanted to get away from their wives, so they made sure they went over the river and they cut down some trees and said that's where our golf is. Sure, yeah. absolutely. But, but part, it's hard to imagine. That's why people, why is the Vancouver Golf Club you know, out there? It's the, the the essence of Vancouver was really New Westminster. It became through the railway, it, yeah. it grew up. Yeah. And now we are, in, of course, in, in another sort of a crazy world. Yep. Okay, now that's the past. Do you know a good example of the, what would be a More good investment More recent example of a good real estate. Yeah. There are still good deals to be had, Ozzy. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's pretty hard to pull it off. Like for example, the Expo site came yeah. up, 205 acres came up for after Expo finished in, in 1986. The expo site becomes available and all the Vancouver developers are salivating to get a piece of the action. I think they kind of agree they, they could carve it up and each get one-fifth or one-tenth or something. 
and they'd all be happy. Well, you know, uh, Bill Vanderzam shocked everybody when he sold it to a Chinese yeah. billionaire. I think part of the reason he sold it to a Chinese billionaire was Li Keqing's argument was, look, you know, I'm a billionaire. I'm yeah. going to come to Vancouver and invest you know, a lot of money. But not only that, I got five friends or right. That will do. Uh, there are billionaires that will do the same yeah. thing. You guys, you guys are all going to benefit. You know, trickle down. I guess you call it. I guess that was a convincing argument, or not? I don't know. But, but it was an interesting deal, and um, it was quite controversial at the time, I guess, because local people were fighting it. But the deal was theoretically. Uh, this is from the legislature, Hansard. Uh, more or less 140 million for 204 acres. So that works out to I think 600 and something thousand dollars an, an acre. Uh, just, it's just interesting, that land today is worth between 100 and $200 million <laughs> an acre. They paid less than a million for it. So, but, but the best part of that deal was it was almost a no money down deal. You know, yeah. Everybody loves no money down. Yeah. How, who can argue with no money down? What it was was $50 million down for 205 acres. Well, yeah. the funny part was, as soon as he put the $50 million down and got a hold of the land, he sold the five acres where the BC Pavilion is today. You know, for fifty million dollars, <laughs> <laughs> so he had no money involved yeah. right at the beginning, yeah. and then he had to pay a, make a payment of a hundred million dollars in two thousand three. Five years later, yeah. five years? No, that's not right. Fifteen years later, fifteen years later, or was it five years later? Well, either five or fifteen years yeah. later, he had to pay a hundred million. So, but it was a no interest loan. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> got, he got his money time. back and yeah. didn't pay any interest on yeah. it. And then by the time he's done. Yeah, the land's worth billions and billions of dollars. Of course, he is a superstar, you know, no question about it. Yeah. I, I remember being in Hong Kong, I, um, the law firm had, the Vancouver law firm had an office right underneath his uh, top floor. Really? And I went to see the lawyer. <laughs> his first thing you got to do is you got to buy two condos. I yeah. said, where? You're in Macau. Yeah. I said, well, no, but that's how oh, yeah. everybody has to buy. And, and I, in Falls Creek, you, if you're the cleaner, if you're yeah. the, you have to buy a condo to get yeah. the cleaner contract. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but all mm -hmm. of their friends, you know, I'm sure he could yeah. get on the phone or have somebody else go on the phone and saying, Lee is putting this together, you're down for a condo. And everybody said, yes, there's yeah, oh, this yeah. mystique. And they all made money. Yes, well, yeah. it's, it's also there's that, that, that untold contract in the sky. If I do something for him, then eventually he's going to do something for me. It's like the contract will be there. And there's a story that one of the towers downtown was sold for some $20 million to somebody who didn't even know where Vancouver was. But they did <laughs> want to go into mainland China. Right. And they realized, and that that apparently is the story. But, but they trusted. They trusted his knowledge. I, I see it more like you get a bunch of billionaires. It doesn't matter where they decide to all put their money. I mean, Dubai is an yeah. example. You know, sure. I mean that whole area is just bald-faced desert. There's not a speck of anything growing in that sand. You pick a, the location of Dubai and say we're all going to put our money there. You get the buildings half a mile high and you know unbelievable. Yeah, and, 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 you, and you could argue that they make a lot of money, but they also have the vision and they stomp like in Dubai. But it's also all ocean yeah. now. All of a sudden, it's a beautiful. It's all uh, sand and did, did you hear that when I was there? I got the tour in two thousand and seven of Dubai, and and it was it was exploding. Like they, their biggest hotel was eight hundred yeah. rooms, and they were building a new hotel, eight thousand rooms. Like that's <laughs> how much that place was exploding. Yeah. And then they took us down the coast and into this bay. And the, you know they carved out of the out of the desert, just a bay. And the tour guide said, "Yeah, somebody here went to Vancouver, and they thought, well, False Creek's kind of nice, so we just thought we'd replicate it. You know, yeah. so we built this bay, and there's like 20, 20 you know, twenty-story towers. Now we yeah. just built in one year, and it's unbelievable. It, yeah. You know, that's what happens when you focus money. Las Vegas is another great example. Yeah. Yeah. Pick a space in the desert, and everybody yeah. everybody says, well, let's all build big hotels there. Yeah. You can do it anywhere in the world. Yeah. You can pour money into anywhere. Yeah. You know." 
And I think that's how the big guys make money. They just agree, let's all do this. And and lots of industries do that. The fashion industry agree on one new color every year and all this kind of oh stuff. Oh yeah, and they make, the us, focus. They make yeah. us really neat bell bottoms followed by skinny pants, yeah. followed by, and then do yeah. it all again 10 years later. And now they're doing that with appliances. You know, yeah. you know, uh, this stove you know, that I have at home, uh, you know, it's 1950s and it works perfect. Yeah. Know, everybody else threw them away. You know, well, the it's new not, ones are actually built this yeah. uh, functional obsolescence, right? Uh, well, you they want them to throw it away. It's so become like a fa one. it's like a fashion thing. Like <laughs> I was actually down at the, the GE store buying it, and the guy says they're designed the last four or five years. And you just yeah. throw them away, get a new color or something. Well, anyways, one thing that's for sure that's never going to be thrown away, and that is that book of yours, uh, Vancouver, A Visual History. I mean, it's a, it's a great thing that you put together there. Because, you know, all of us that love Vancouver, you know, find it almost hard to believe how we started. And can it keep on going? It has reinvented itself so many times in the last hundred uh, plus years from, you know, gassy jacks to today we have a a vibrant, a multicultural society yep. where things really work very well together. And talking about, about Vancouver, I mean, uh, lately, the last year or two, I've been working on the Salish Sea as sort of the context of Vancouver. And, you know, it's amazing when you pull back and look at the Salish Sea, which is, you know, BC and Washington State agreed to rename the Strait of Georgia, the, the um, Puget Sound, and the Strait of Winnipeg. All three of them would be labeled the Salish Sea. If you look at that area, it's really amazing because it's surrounded by mile high mountains that are completely uninhabited. Yeah, you know, you got Mount Baker. Our mountain, North Shore mountains, yeah. are one mile high. Yeah, you, you know, the tallest mountain in Great Britain is, is Ben Novus. It's um, four thousand one hundred and fourteen feet. And yeah, it's a hill. Our, <laughs> yeah, it's a hill. Our, our North Shore mountains are way taller than that yeah. than the whole of Great Britain. Yeah. and they're right there in the ocean. Yeah. And then Mount Baker is two miles high. But yeah. since I've been and all the volcanoes are basically two miles high. But here's what I didn't know: uh, Mount Rainier in which looms over Seattle, is three miles high. You yeah. know, I mean, it's an amazing place. Yeah. Uh, and so then we got a super mild climate. Like, a, you know, I just sort of realized that, that, you know, we're protected from the, all the tidal waves even and, and weather by Vancouver Island. We're protected by four mountain ranges from the winter cold, except for today. And, and, you know, it funnels all that cold air down to Texas. We don't get, hardly ever get right, it. Right. So we got all this stuff and we got, you know, 30, 35 kinds of edible berry bushes here, including the biggest blueberry farm in the world. It's just 10 miles yeah. from here. Like we got all incredibly rich environment, 100 million salmon in the Fraser then, River. Then people are surprised that people want to live here, right? We have a border, we have an ocean, we have a yeah. mountain. We can't grow and expand, say in Calgary, again, 50 miles in each direction. You can build houses, not here. What uh, is here? No, we're, we're, we're definitely hemmed in, you know, and most of BC is a sea of mountains. But, um, and from here north, like I, 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 we've always known that if, you, if you're fleeing your hometown in the prairies because you can't stand small and you come to the west, go as far as Canada, you end up in Vancouver. But did you realize that it's the same thing's true the other way? When you come up from the States, you can fly up the I-5, but the second you hit Vancouver, you're facing a wall of mountains a mile high and you can't go any further on a car. Like you All cannot right. drive. From Horseshoe Bay, you, All right. you can't go. You no. can't go through Squamish, and, and you can't. You're, you're, it's the end of the road. So it's the end of the road going north south, and then the road going east south. It's the end of the road sure. both ways. Yeah. So it's a really special place, and um, and people are going to continue to come here. There's no question about that. Real estate's going to have to go up. You know, just because, like you say, there's no room to expand, yeah. really. Well, yeah. and even in business, I can call my European business partner in the morning, and in the evening, I can call my Chinese Interesting. business partner. Really? There's no place in the world where I can, in Is one day, right? business day, wow. talk around the world. Wow. Well, Bruce, look, it's been absolutely uh, fabulous. Thank you for taking the time. 
I can only, uh, I, when I saw the book first, um, I was drooling over it and I'm still <laughs> drooling over it. I mean, look, each those double page maps that you have, the prominent personalities of each decade in sports, politics, business, labor, and sort of the overview of each period's economic focus and settlement patterns and the political direction. When I look at that book today uh, and us as a city today, that was our history and that's going to be also our future. Everybody should go to Amazon and buy five of those books. Thank, <laughs> thanks a lot, Bruce. Thank you. My pleasure.